0: everybody the movie morgue is back we were on a tiny bit of a hiatus because Jess and I both got sick one week after the other so we had to delay recording a tiny bit but we're really happy to bring you this 100th episode it's with our friend Matt who is back to talk about one of our favorite films that is Guillermo del Toro's Blade 2
1: Guys, gals, and non-binary pals, welcome to this special hundredth episode of The Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. Yay. I'm your host, Jess Whitmore.
0: And hi again, everyone. I'm your co-host and producer, Annie.
1: And joining us today, friend of the show,
0: Matt. Hello. Oh, yay,
2: You're it back. Is I, Count Matt. I come from a long line of <laughs> you <love>? gathering vampires who <laughs> are all nasal... <laughs> <laughs> but we require blood and the mucus to survive.
1: <laughs> okay, well, Matt, why don't you tell us what you've brought today? This is a very special film to you, and one we've wanted to do for a while. Uh, yeah,
2: <laughs> that's absolutely the case. Um, we are gonna be covering Blade Two, not Blade, the one that kicked off the Marvel universe for the entire world, but its sequel. Blade 2. Everybody remember Blade
0: 2? They better remember Blade 2. They better.
1: I remember Blade 2. Do you?
2: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, no. So it's Del Toro. We fucking love it. Uh, Let's talk about context real fast, because... First of all, just for this recording, I know Annie and I both actually watched both films back to back. Um yeah, Matt, we did, did you, or did you just watch the second one uh, for this? In
2: preparation for this one, I just watched Blade 2, no, just because I've got a busy schedule.
0: I think that's fair. That's fair. Wow.
1: Okay, so that, no, fair enough, fair enough. That just does solve a question that we did have, was kind of like, for me and Annie at least, it was a little difficult, because it's like, eh, can we talk about them separately? Because, like. It's not that they—they're bad films, or like they don't—that they naturally be together. It's just watching them back to back, and there's a lot of okay. commonalities that you can kind of like discuss. And it's the hundredth episode, it's a little special. We could have talked about two movies. Um, but yeah, no, like I have not seen this movie in well over a decade. Oh boy! And holy shit, it's from fucking two thousand two. We're old.
0: Yeah, oh I know we kind of are, mm-hmm. but it's still it's a golden oldie. So if you will.
1: Matt, what's what's your context for this film? Why is this your favorite goddamn? Movie? Uh, Do you tell?
0: It's us?
2: just so this was one of those movies that I don't know if you folks had cable back in the day. That's it would come up on like HBO every like five hours or every Tuesday just to fill in because it was like oh this is like an R-rated action movie this is the perfect thing to fill in a time slot and just from trying to find something on the TV I ended up seeing Blade 2 so many times of just being like on the sci-fi channel or HBO or things like that and this was before I knew Del Toro this was before I was super well versed in like horror stuff, and it was just this radical, rein- not reinvention, but take on classic vampire iconography, but with the badass action of Blade and Guillermo del Toro's twisted vision. And it was like, this is amazing. And so for years, I just loved fucking Blade too. And then the more I knew about cinema, the more I realized that it was a kind of... I don't know. A lightning rod for so much of the the best talents in film was in Blade Two of all movies, and that makes me very happy. So that's why I love proselytizing about this movie. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I watched this with my husband,
1: and that's probably the last time I'm going to be able to say that fucking phrase. Aww. Uh, I'm getting divorced on Tuesday, folks. It's a mess. But <laughs> like, okay. he was just so excited because he's just like, look, it's
0: big. is is so good it is baby norman reedus and he's got the hair and everything from before he's had the
2: same face for over 20 years i know that's also
0: very very weird (laughs) it's so wild it is his name is scud he is scud yeah it fits it's
1: great and you got fucking like norman perlman's a bit of a baby too like He's not young, but he's so much younger than we think uh-huh. of him.
0: Oh, you mean Ron? Yeah, no. I'll always think of him as a dude with and white you got hair. You Donnie Yen in there? It's crazy. It is Donnie Yen. It's Donnie Yen with eyeliner, which I completely approve of. Yeah,
1: definitely. So... <laughs> that is kind of weird. It's, I, I, yeah. I can't...
0: <laughs> it's just a good time.
1: I, I don't know what the fuck they were thinking with that facial hair, but whatever.
0: Well, they probably looked at a lot of pictures of skin. Annie, um,
1: so how did you come to this movie originally?
0: Um... <laughs> My partner and I watched all three of the Blade movies during our honeymoon. We kind of had like a movie marathon Um, at certain points. I think it was because I got sunburned at one point. So that was what happened. And we just had a really great time. So we have amazing memories associated with all three of these films, really. And we both have a very great love for Blade 2, which I think is the strongest entry into, um, you know, the franchise. And also this weird affection for the utter plane crash that is Blade 3. So, we watched them during our honeymoon. Both of us kind of came to this series during college. We saw the films, I think, on FX again. I know a lot of my uh, film watching experiences have come from that channel. So, yeah, that was how we came to it. Jess? I mean,
1: yeah, I kind of like, I don't really remember when I saw this. Like, I know that I've seen it, like, years and years and years ago and i liked both of them i have strong memories of the film um to the point where like it's just it was i was having like that fucking like you know matrix plug-in moment where it's like i know what the next line is it's like it wasn't a dud like it, it just like the beats just started coming back to me so like i was familiar with it i just honestly cannot place where i first saw it i just know that i remember liking it and like The last time I saw this, I didn't know who the fuck Del Toro was.
2: Oh, that's super interesting. It's been a while. That must have been a fascinating experience. (laughs) That's got to be a weird awakening.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely is.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I mean, like, that's the other thing also is, like, and I think this is important just for the sake of discussing this as a franchise, which I think we're going to have to do a little bit, is...
0: Oh, Jess! I uh, I haven't seen the third one yet. I I've knew caught it. like glimpses
2: of it on cable or like, in the airport or something, but I have not seen it. Oddly enough, I think Annie are gonna have Annie and I are gonna have different opinions because I have no need <laughs> for ever watching any part of part three again. It just uh, it just doesn't come up in my list of priorities.
0: Blade three is, as I described before, an utter car crash in utter slow motion. Crash. And I think that's part of what makes it so interesting for me to watch is that this is what happens when you give the material to somebody who does not have the rigorous sense of narrative that uh, del Toro has. Um, but yeah, at some point you definitely need to Look, see Look, this
1: is what I know from cultural osmosis is it okay. was... Fucking, uh, it was Ryan Reynolds' preemptive penance. Uh, yeah. That's all I know. Uh
0: Yeah, what that's this? not inaccurate. So let's, 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 let's talk about
1: this fucking movie instead of all the yes, other fucking movies. Okay. A I'm already having enough podcast. trouble, like, separating out the blood rave. Blood rave.
0: Blood rave. Yes, rape. the blood rave from the first movie.
1: Blood rave is the first movie, and you're the one who says we can't blood talk rage. about
2: it. <laughs>
0: okay.
2: It's okay. This one has uh, European <laughs> oh. perverts instead.
0: That is true. That's true.
1: Well, yeah, it's it's. there's still Matrix Parallels to be made. There are. Oh, God, what a time capsule. What a fucking time <laughs> capsule. So how do we rate this one? And um, Matt, let's start with you. Like, on a letter grade scale, where do you put this film?
2: Okay, on a letter grade scale, um, like the best podcast guest, I'm going to give a convoluted answer that defies your easy grading system. Perfect. You know, I like those. I would say that this movie, as it is right now, is a retouch away from being perfect. Um, it's not; it's some of its action or some of its interpersonal relationships are a little wooden, and that's kind of okay, at least in my book, for an action film. Uh, the CGI from 2002 has not aged well at all. Um, Except, actually, I take that back. The very specific scenes of CGI where it's CGI combat have not aged well versus the CGI for all the creatures when it was actually used. It's very limited, um, and it's very effective. Um, But other than that, like, if you could just have one of the uh, digital art houses go over those uh, rubber foo CGI's, I would give this a A plus. as it is, it is an A minus um, with just a the CGI being the main drawback, just because it's so um, it's made sense, it's, it, it takes center stage when it is on screen. So you can't look away from the bad CGI. kind of like how in matrix reloaded. The Agent Smith neophyte just looks really stupid at some points. When it's just uh,
1: see, this is CGI. this is the thing about that sp- specific thing because um, like fucking millennials that we are, my husband and I were watching this and uh, we didn't have our attention entirely focused on it because that's just how we watch movies these days. We don't have time for that shit. But um, we we were watching it and um, I did specifically when the godlights fight, you know, in the factory, um, I did specifically say put down your fucking phone, watch this because here's the famous shot. Now, here's what I'm going to say about that specifically, though, is, like, yes, those two shots with the rubber foo are famous, but I really actually like the rest of the CGI use in those, specifically because you can tell when they're using it, and it does pull you out of it a little bit, but they also use it for these really ambitious camera modes.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Like... It's so anime. Like, I really want to see Guillermo del Toro do an anime Well, that's why, speaking
2: of, you know, anime, that's one of the big things that, one of the big influences of Blade 2 that uh, Guillermo del Toro specifically cites of why he loves working with uh, Wesley Snipes. Because according to him, nobody could pull off a fucking superhero pose like Wesley Snipes. Because he would just, like, he would do the poses and, like, there's fluid motions better than anybody else in the business. You know, at least that's what Del Toro said.
1: Oh no, we, we got to come back to this. I'm I'm. This is juicy stuff. Annie, how would you how would you grade Blade Two, the bladening, the
0: bladening? <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and give this one a solid A minus. I do think that there are issues with the CGI. It's a little dated. However, I really like the style of it. Um, and by that I mean the sort of references to anime through the sparks flying off of swords, the crazy high kicks in that sequence in front of the floodlights. Um, I think that those were visually very ambitious, and I like that about the style. I also like the way that this is filmed compared to the first movie. The first movie is all about these kind of, like, epic... Um, shots, which are set up very much like um, history paintings. There's a real sense of epic heroicism to all of that camera work. What I like about this movie is that it's shot more on the scale of its characters. It follows people around. So there's more of a sense of the camera moving through space, and I love that. The last bit I'll say is that I think we've seen a lot of fantasy and superhero films that do not tackle the theme of white supremacy well. Blade 2 is, I think... And the Blade franchise overall does that really well by focusing on blood and kinship and chosen family. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so intrigued by this series overall. Jess, how about you? All right.
1: Yeah, I would put this at a high A-minus, low A. And I'm I'm going to go ahead and say an A-minus um, just to be consistent with that here. Because, like, here's the thing. And this was a really difficult thing to realize as I watch these movies back to back is I think I like the first movie more mm. and Matt you can Creases you can hurt me now um but let, let, let me explain why I feel that way um I think there's more meat on the bones in the second movie but the first movie I think just has a much tighter script
2: mm, that's fair.
1: And is like I would I would watch the second one to indulge in the filmic experience, but if I wanted like a narrative experience, I'd watch the first one.
0: Oh, okay. I that's just feel like that's a
1: little bit tighter. Okay. Um, but they're both very good, and like it's very close. It's not like oh you know the second movie sucks and the original's the good one. Like that's that's not how I feel. Um, it's just, I, I, it surprised me and I have to take note of it because I remember this kind of cultural zeitgeist of like, oh no, the second one's the good one. I mean, the, like, I didn't remember the first one that much and having watched them both back to back, the first one surprised me with how good it was. So I think it could just be a matter of expectations versus experience because the first one surprised me and the second one was kind of what I expected. Okay. If like a little, a little bit less?
0: That's super interesting because I am the exact opposite way with these two films. I think that Blade 1, for me, is the film that I watch in the background. It's the one where I don't necessarily have to pay attention, but which also has really, really strong visuals. So I really like that about it. I think that's a very, you know visually intriguing movie but for me blade hmm. 2 is the movie that i watch when i want to think about the story of blade and hear more hmm. about that you
2: know that makes sense it makes sense uh, i find myself in the same uh, position of blade 1 for me is very much a background movie whereas blade 2 can be a background movie however like as it's evidenced by my experience like i keep getting drawn into that movie whenever i see snippets of it's like i just kind of want to keep watching because it's i would say that blade one is more of a singular product or singular vision it's got its own like this is what 90s vampires early 2000s like the idea of that urban i don't know master of the universe kind of vibe for the vampires, like that edgy 90s sness was all worked into the first Blade, whereas Blade Two doesn't do any of that, and instead kind of creates its own thing, riffing from like classical uh, vampire tradition as well as the like 2000 cyber goth look, and the result is is weird as fuck, uh, and I love it. I love the Reapers so much, but it's not. It doesn't have the same, uh, I don't know, impact or aesthetic as the first one. I'm not really sure how to put it, but there's more that catches my eye in part two and makes me want to keep watching than part one. That's
1: fair. Um, One thing I kind of noticed was... um... Okay, so this is this is the thing to think about for me. Is um, fuck, what was I talking about? My brain, my brain's farting. Oh yeah, no, this is the thing that's really fascinating for me is what a time capsule these movies are. Yeah, and how different they are. But what's fascinating for me is that Blade One is pre-Matrix and Blade Two is post-Matrix, and I really cannot divorce that realization from my experience of the film.
0: Mm. That's fair.
1: Because, um, like, and that comparison is not, I think, super kind to Blade 2, particularly because, and I think this is the biggest weakness of the film for me is the kind of, like, the, um, not the not the Nighthawk, what were they the called? The Blood Pack. The, what was the Hunter Co- Scott? The Blood Pack. The Blood Pack is super weak.
0: What? Uh, I love
2: the Blood Pack.
0: Yeah. I don't
2: know if I agree with that.
0: I have questions.
2: T-
1: okay, tell me what the fuck priest and
2: snowman actually <laughs> they did. They fought. Yeah. They were. Okay, so here. I'll take. Or, it, like, I'll, I will give you real word answers instead of just, uh, what you call it, talky ones, because I forgot. This is a podcast. You don't just, like, say things. Oh. Okay, so the Blood Pack. The Blood Pack were not characters the blood pack um had two a couple like two characters who just got enough characterization to have the whole star-crossed lovers when he gets turned into a reaper and she doesn't to make it all things kind of tense you had donnie yen being fucking donnie yen everybody had their weird specialty and since most of them die it doesn't really matter you know what i mean in terms of like they're there just to look cool and fight cool and have, like, a specialty when they're fighting for, like, the few scenes they exist in. And it's like, yeah. But they do have, like, enough of, like, the weird side plots happening between them to make them interesting. Or at least to viewers like me.
1: I mean, I, I, I kind of get it. And I can agree on a technical level. I just feel like it didn't land for me. And part of it was just like, I don't know, I feel like I didn't need much from mm-hmm. them. And I I I had expectations that were laid out very quickly, and I don't feel like they really surprised me in any way. So it does feel like they just kind of eat screen time a little bit. So
0: this is actually what? one of the critiques of the film that I also share with you, Jess. I do think... Though that the Blood Pack is really supposed to be a rogues gallery, right? They're supposed to be a group of villains who have banded together to fight off this larger evil, which blade is then despite being opposed to them having to join with them as well so that's what they're there for they're really kind of there to be plot drivers and i think one thing that this movie could have done a little bit better is to give them more screen time to give them a deeper yep. characterization i think that would have made this that's richer. that's true
2: i okay, agree so with two that things. if they give everyone in the blood path hmm. more time to shine that would mean that we only got more donnie yen fights
0: which i am also very down with so
2: hell the fuck yeah <laughs> But,
1: okay, so two things, two things. One, um, I, I mean, I can agree with that. Secondly, I I just feel like, okay, so, you know, um, Reinhardt, great. Nissa, okay. Asad, yeah. um, I think, kind of implies a lot of interesting things, but doesn't necessarily have enough going on yet. But um, I, I think for me the big one is Chupa feels redundant. Like he's just a
2: second Reinhardt. But he's the one who gets uh And messed up, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. but Reinhardt gets messed up by Blade! Well, that's,
2: yeah I mean, like, But it's... that's Chupa's the one who gets turned. Uh, yeah
0: I don't th- I think that's uh Light Lighthammer. No, oh, that's Light Lighthammer.
2: Right, Lighthammer. Okay, what did Chupa do? We I miss up their their little X Men names.
1: Chupa's the one that gets murked by the Reapers when uh Whistler gets him. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well.
2: Um... I
1: think the other thing that kind of primes me in a weird way is I don't like how they bring Whistler back. I mean, that's fair. I get that, like, he's a strong emotional anchor and that he's not bad in this film. What gets me is just this idea that when you have the whole opening, come in and say, like, oh yeah, we're going to undo that thing that we did at the end of the last movie, which was like a really powerful sequence from the original movie. I I really feel like that undercut a lot of drama for me. And I think part of this is also, I think, the way I kind of internalized the whole like creator work relationship Mm -hmm. because I was like, I came into this with these really high expectations of a Del Toro film. You all know I Mm -hmm. love Del Toro. And you all know I have really high expectations from him. And in a way, I felt this kind of disappointed on that a little bit. I feel like there was really strong development, but one thing I went back and I checked is like, yeah, Del Toro didn't get a writing credit for this one. And I feel that kind of shows a little. Oh, yeah, that's... This was a David S. Goyer film, as far as writing is concerned. Oh, Goyer. He's such a mixed bag.
0: Yeah, he is. I do think that there's a lot of Del Toro in Uh. this project, though.
1: Yeah. And like... I think that just kind of primes me to, like, look at this in a slightly more critical way. And the other thing I think that gets me is, like, I feel like I like the tone of the first film more because, like, here's the thing. Um, You know, you mentioned the humor in this, and I do like the humor in this, but the humor in this feels, I think, more divorced and externalized from the universe than it does in the first movie. Because in the first movie, it's this kind of, like, cold, callous, black humor. It's like, you know, we're not running a charity, Mm-hmm. And in this one, it's quips and it's catching the sunglasses. You know, Ooh. some motherfuckers are always trying to ice yeah. a Uh, pill. That's, yeah, that's one. Think one. I that's one. It fits better with two. That, though, that's in one. I yes, agree.
0: it is from the first film.
2: Where well, you're right, and it feels it's, like. Oh it's right, a okay. No, no, line. you're right.
0: Yeah, no. He said that in one of the readings. Like he just, he just yeah. does something. He
2: just fucking says. <laughs> yes. He just fucking says. He just that. does this stuff. Goddamn.
0: Um, and that if was he didn't
2: do the whole tax fraud and Blade Three. Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Um. But yeah, no, I think this is why Del Toro likes working with him, because he says things that make sense for the character. And so Snipes is one of these actors who I think gets written off as not knowing what he's doing. Um, But he is very conscious of the character and conscious of the choices that he makes. I also want to say, like, I kind of like some of the jokes that they set up in this movie. I think there's a lot more meta jokes, like jokes with the audience as opposed to jokes inside the story. Like when he doesn't smash his motorcycle into his car and then blows a kiss at his car um, or rings at it. That's good stuff. Like, it's a good joke. I liked that. I thought that was kind of cute. And it is this joke with the audience. So I think there's a different it's, form uh, of humor going on here.
2: How is it? This is the... I apologize to everybody who doesn't watch DC animated films, um, but this is this kind of a situation that you find it in the most recent uh, Justice League Dark film. And that is what happens when you make the outsider the straight man. And in that one, Mm. Batman has to team up with all of DC's supernatural spooky heroes who all deal with magic and demons and all that weird shit. He's just a kid who watched his parents die and has a lot of kung fu training and some nice toys. So, like, normally he's, like, surly whatever Batman. But when you surround him with a bunch of weirdos, it's like the inner comedian comes out and in blade 2 it seems that's the approach they take and like that's the way they took the character is they kind of take all of the brooding um seriousness of part one and i really just drain it away so he can be the wise ass who's reacting to all these weirdos and like that's how you get my favorite line of the film is when he's facing off with reinhardt and you get ooh, so excited (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh that's good there are so many good gif moments oh, i love yeah. it oh
0: yeah
1: um but like th- th- and i think this is an important thing like and i think what this kind of approaches for me is like the fundamental appeals of the film and i think there is a difference between the fundamental appeal of blade one and blade two and i think blade one just struck me as such a fascinating film compared to this one because of the contrast with what a superhero what a marvel film is in this modern day and age mm, like that's fair you know step aside black panther here's your first black superhero movie wow, well, and it's so different it's r-rated it's messy it's gory it has competent horror chops and this one does too but like the tone of the first one feels more divorced from what we kind of expect from a modern film and i feel like it's more singular and it stands out more in my mind
0: yeah that's fair To go back to what you were saying before, though, Blade is not actually the first Black superhero in film. Um, Spawn comes before him. And I think this kind of gets at a a broader point that you were making there, which is that Blade does have a very different aesthetic and a different set of narrative precepts than, say, most of the contemporary Marvel films. That's important to point out. Blade is drawing on... um, A different group of foundational texts like it is drawing very very strongly from african-american gothic fiction and from horror because those are two genres of literature that have been expressive of black people's experiences here in the u.s that have spoken to those in deep and really rich and complicated ways um so blade is of necessity going to look different and it draws more heavily on films like Ganja and Hess, Blackula, A Vampire in Brooklyn, as well as exploitation films like Shaft than it is drawing on, you know, other contemporary superhero films like Superman or even Batman, even Batman's aesthetics. Like it has a very different look um, than the Batman movies as well. So it's just speaking to a different set of issues, too. It's talking about drug addiction. It's talking about um, the HIV-AIDS crisis in the 1980s. And it's talking about white supremacy through the figures of vampires who are predatory so they can maintain their status and power in society. So it's just drawing on a different set of texts and references to get at the experiences of its characters.
1: Definitely. I mean, it's just like... It's such an interesting case, and th- that's—I did not expect the, these films to be as interesting mm. as they are.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: In a way, like I was expecting quality. I—I I had very strong memories, and particularly knowing what I know now about Del Toro and with the expectations I have, like I was not disappointed. Especially the Reaper design. Reapers. Absolutely so gorgeous. Perfect. Um, it's so good. And like it's seared into my mind. I remember the way they opened their mouths. Like that was definitely like formative for me and kind of my,
2: like one of my f- first favorite like creature designs. Yeah, it remains one of my and, favorite creature designs to this day. Oh, it's so
1: good. And ah oh, man, uh, I I just gotta I gotta give fucking props to Luke Goss as oh. Nomak. He plays that so Perfect. well. The sunken, like, like first of all, makeup department, great, prosthetics and effects, great. Like they all, and it's not just that each of those departments does their job so well; it's that they work in tandem to create this cohesive picture. Where I think there's like a little bit of CGI wonkiness throughout the film, and so on. I think with regards to Nomak as a character, and the Reapers in a more general sense, you get that kind of. Jurassic Park cohesiveness and holistic product that comes from all these departments and different approaches and techniques working together to create the creatures and the characters in a way that is consistent and believable and holistic.
0: It is very holistic, and I think that's partly because Guillermo del Toro draws from so many different frames of aesthetic and narrative reference, right? So he's drawing a lot of his stuff, not only from other films like Nosferatu, he's definitely pulling from that but also from Balkan folklore, like that is part of how the Reaper design came to be. Because in folklore about vampires from the Balkan Peninsula, they don't suck blood with their fangs, they have a protuberance or a finger that comes out of their mouth to suck blood, which is terrifying as a concept. But it's cool to see him go back to those folkloric sources to pull from them because they are such rich texts. Um, And they are speaking to these really deep-held anxieties and fears um, about these creatures. And I think that's wonderful that he's able to incorporate that into his design, um, as well as pulling from film. So there's just a really broad frame of reference that he's playing Mm -hmm. with, and it makes this work so rich.
2: It's just the, the... We talk about, like, the CGI being not holding up, but then every other aspect of this film is just still fucking gorgeous and
1: drawn
2: from such a weird Um, mix of influences, you know? It's, like, it's... I just love it so much in Nomek. Perfect.
0: Yeah, like, I feel like in... There are parts of this movie where I can kind of overlook... The uh, weirdness of the CGI because yeah. of the story, and because of the design.
1: Here, here's the thing I want to say about the CGI.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think we have a fair experience of what that CGI is like. Because he, here, there, there's two things. One is like the crazy dynamic like anime camera moves. Those are definitely CGI you can tell, but they're also exciting and thrilling. And I really Mm -hmm. like those.
2: That's because the fights, even with the CGI set pieces, or they're saying set pieces, it's a fight scene, you know? It's only be like, it's like maybe 10 seconds of screen time. But the fight scenes were all choreographed by Donnie Yen. He's the guy in charge of the fight choreography. So, like, the quality continues even, like, you'll have, like, the weird CGI kick flick, but you'll have an amazing camera move. That takes to fight back to yeah. ground level.
1: But specifically, though, with the two in the suits, which, by the way, um, like I said, I was watching this with my husband. And when they turn on the god lights and the apertures in their goggles oh, close, I really that's Del Toro. That. That's oh, yeah. the Del Toro detail. Yep,
0: that's, oh, that, yep. that's where you know so you're a Del Toro sexy. film. And <laughs> what
1: I really loved about that is, like, it's so... It's so good. It's so good. But, like, specifically, though, like, the two famous fight scenes that are...
0: Like the beginning and ending ones? The,
1: not, it's the same fight scene. It's oh. the two famous okay. shots that are, like, really obvious CGI. Um, Is like, you know, when they're doing, like, the fucking flipping mm-hmm. kicks, and they're right in front of the lights, and they're obviously both CGI. I've seen that in GIFs. I've seen that in YouTube complaints. Like, I cannot... But... I don't think when I first saw this and I don't think I saw this in theaters. I think I saw this on cable like you guys. I don't think that when I was younger and when this movie was fresh and in a pre-YouTube, pre-internet movie discourse time, I don't think I would have caught it. I mean, maybe I would have cuz you know, I became an animator, but like that's still in a time post-internet, post this new paradigm of film discussion and at the time, I think it it goes by fast enough that you can let it go
2: mm-hmm, yeah, that's like me and Annie given an a minus including those flaws, you know it's not those are flaws for sure, but they don't actually ruin the movie, you know okay
1: so let's let's talk about del Toro for a second because it's mm-hmm. kind of fascinating trying to place this in my own kind of mental canon because part of what this film is is. Really informed by the expectations that I have for Del Toro as a director. He's one of my absolute favorites, and Matt, I know he's one of yours too. Um, but I mm-hmm. feel like my expectations for him have become, and they're, I think, at this point, very much informed by his modern work, which I think is more developed and elegant and refined. Mm-hmm. And there's still the fundamental yeah. core of what I love about his work, and I think. It's still strong, and it is still a good example of his work, but it is a good example of his early period, and it's much closer to something like Hellboy than it is to something like Shape of Water. Yeah. And part of it is not having Mm -hmm. that necessarily correctly calibrated expectation. And so when I went into this, I'm like, Del Toro, Mm -hmm. I'm so excited. There's going to be like a heartfelt monster. I'm going to cry for the villains, and it's going to be so good. And I got a little bit more Hellboy. And I I had to adjust, and I had to recalibrate mm-hmm. halfway through the film to get there. And I still love it, and it's still incredible. But that slight dissonance did kind of, I think, undersell. But what is kind of interesting, because, Annie, you were talking about Damasquinos, and that does, I think, kind of hint at where he goes later. Like, it reminded me, it was so gothic. it Like, that whole section reminded me very much of, like, you have the compound they're in, which is very, you know... Um, what is it called again? RPD, the the Hellboy organization. Uh, the it was very that, you know. Yeah, BPRD. There we go. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have that, but then you get inside and you have that like key shaped pool of blood, and you have his really long robes, and that beautiful, beautiful, you know, makeup and prosthetic application, and the character design, and that that felt a little like Crimson Peak to me.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see that.
1: So, like, it's really fascinating looking at del Toro's earlier work. And, like, I know this isn't, like, you know, his, like, you know, Latin American cinema, like, you know, Devil's Backbone stuff. This isn't, like, early, early del Toro. This is early Hollywood del Toro. But you still see the roots of where he goes. And you see, I think, aspects of both what he's known for in his more commercial work and what he's known for in his more, you know, like, I guess Oscar work, you
2: know? it's it's interesting with Blade 2 was his first Hollywood film coming off of mimic now mimic despite being a really enjoyable film is um, as his called it's like his his neglected child it's the one he had the least control over there was uh, was made for the Weinstein company so you had to deal with that motherfucker um, and just so many hobblings to his like you know creative uh, control. Blade Two was his first movie after that, and you can see that all of the things that remain constants through uh Guillermo Del Toro's filmography, which honestly I'd say comes down to set design more than anything else, of that is consistently great. Um, but Blade Two has that gothic, moody, um sexy, ancient combination that you find in like Mimic, you kind yeah. of find it in the Devil's Backbone, you sure as hell find it in Kronos. And Hellboy has the same deal. I'm actually kind of shocked to find out that uh, the guy who played Nomak is the same guy who plays uh, Prince Nuadu in Golden Army, who kind of has the same Very similar vibes. Very similar arc. vibes. Yeah. That's Del Toro. He really likes to iterate on variations of the same ideas.
1: Yeah. Um one thing this is one thing I noticed is like going through this in the cast and just like seeing people pop up is like there are so many people that I've I feel and like I I feel like this will be backed up by like interviews and stuff, but I'm I'm am i I'm going off the cuff here, so I'll I'll be transparent about that. It's like I feel like there's a lot of people who just really love to work with Del Toro. You know, you got Norman Reedus, he collaborated with him for fucking uh, P.T. and all that that was going to be a thing that fucking thanks Konami. Uh, you know, you got Ron Perlman who obviously worked with him in Hellboy. Uh, came back with him for um, Pacific Rim. You know, and it's just like... I f- mm. there, there's There's absolutely like this kind of all-star cast to this that I don't think necessarily were the hugest stars at the time. But first of all, I love that vibe. I love... There's movies like that, and I'm trying to remember the one that we did cover, where it's like, oh my god, this is before everyone got famous. Um, I can't remember it off the top of my head right now. And I feel like this is one of those, If even if it is a little bit lower key. Um, but I feel like there's kind of a love there that is kind of palpable. Like, this is one thing that I really noticed watching both films back to back, is Wesley oh, Snipe yeah. loves being Blade.
0: Yeah, he does. This is his favorite Blade. Um, Blade Two and it's his favorite collaboration like he said as much in interviews before
1: i mean it's my favorite blade movie he's got good taste
0: i think it's a lot of people's favorite blade movie because it's just so well put together and it's very clear that del toro and snipes had this really solid working relationship and that enabled them to create this character who i don't know just feels very grounded and yet is capable of being a force Mm of nature at other times it's it's so interesting
2: and his physicality is just so on display in this one yeah like, I, I came oh, up yeah. during the us review but like that's that's his secret power it's wonderful that like, i don't think many uh superhero films have were ever able to replicate is that he gets the snappy fluid motions from pose to pose and like he knows how to do it and it when you see it in action like that's like oh shit that's how it's done
0: yeah 100%. And this
2: one, he just gets plenty of opportunities to do it.
0: Yeah, no, that's yeah. that's how the work is done. Yeah.
1: I'm going to go ahead and say, and this is maybe my own baggage here, but like, I really suspect there's some frame cutting going on in there, um, which is where you film something at a regular speed or even at a slightly higher frame rate. And you strategically cut out frames to snap into poses a little bit. It's something that I'm trying to remember. There was a film recently where I'm like, I think they did that. And then I was watching them behind the scenes or there was something and they mentioned doing it. I was like, I fucking called it because this is a technique that like, I'm not going to say I invented because I fucking didn't. But like that I came to in my own time as an animator. And seeing people do that in live action is incredibly exciting for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I really like the physicality of that, of cutting out small frames to make the motion that much more like sometimes it's jerky or sometimes it's more rigorous um more solid like the motion seems more practiced and and flawless um which is what i kind of think we see with blade here And I really like that technique. I think it also underscores the fact that vampires and a lot of the other beings in this series operate on a different level when it comes to time. Like, time just works differently for them. So I like what that's doing aesthetically and narratively.
1: Yeah, but, like, this is one thing that I think is very consistent with Del Toro's film. And I think it's something that's kind of hard to quantify because this is something that I think was fulfilled here. But when I know Del Toro is at the helm, I know there's going to be good talent because I know there are people who love to work with him. And it's it's hard because it's also not really a specific group of people. Like, there are certainly people who have worked with him on multiple occasions who keep coming back for more projects with him. But also, like... If I had to, you know, throw this out to conjecture, I think he's very good at negotiating with and building these really good working relationships with his actors. So even with actors that he works with for the first time, he can pull out these really amazing performances. I mean... I'm not the most familiar with his filmography. I'll be the first to admit that. I have still to this day not seen Pan's Labyrinth.
0: Oh, we should remedy that.
1: When he's working with, like, Shape of the Water, I think he was working with a couple of those actors for the first time, and those were incredible performances. So when I think of Del Toro, I think of, first of all, like, this incredible attention to detail, this incredible direction and set and production design, but I also think the performances are going to be rock solid,
0: and they are. Yeah, and I think this is just a, kind yeah. of a hallmark of his work. Like, Guillermo del Toro is a people person. I... And by that, I mean he's interested in humans and how they relate to one another and these sort of like interlocking systems of oppression and refusal. And that comes out in his work because it's so character driven. And we all know that there's a new Blade series that's going to be coming out from Marvel. And, you know, I would love to see oh, del Toro for sure. direct. I would love to see him direct one, but I don't think it's going to happen.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I, I don't. I can't see Marvel ever hiring Dil Toro, though.
0: Yeah, and that's he, frustrating. He
1: needs like this. This is one of the things that they've done, and ever since someone pointed this out in like some article somewhere, like who fucking knows at this point. But the fact is that they hire. TV directors, so they can have more executive production control. That bugs the shit out of me. Like that has honestly really poisoned the well for me with the Marvel films specifically.
2: I mean, Disney's kind of poisoned the well for me on that one. Of they kind of create okay movies that some eventually destroy all variations of the same goddamn Iron Man movie, or have no fucking colors.
1: They, they, that problem existed before Disney took over. I though. Mean, let's be real.
2: I, I now that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse exists, I have absolutely no reason to ever watch Doctor Strange. Yeah,
0: like, I mean, I've watched it again, and yeah. it's
2: like you know what? Nothing this movie does. Yep. Is better than Into the Spider-Verse.
0: Yep.
1: Well, to be fair, n- like nothing's better than Into
2: the Spider-Verse. Let's be real. <laughs> that movie makes me True. cry. True, but it's it's. Doctor Strange's trippy uh, special effects was supposed to, with the aim was the same aim as Into the Spider-Verse's special effects, but Into the Spider-Verse was amazing, and that one was like, I've seen Inception. Inception does it better. A
0: hundred percent. Yep. Anyway. Yeah,
2: and also, it doesn't have the gross Orientalism of, like,
1: me, white doctor men, go to the Orient to learn uh, magic healing.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely.
2: Everyone knows that only white people can learn good. <sighs> this has been a message from your local white people council. America. You should probably cut out the America singing <laughs> part, but, No right. way, I'm leaving that in. Who am I to yeah. direct art? Who am I to direct art?
1: <laughs> and, like, this. this is, I think, where... I feel like the film is like, Whistler should have stayed dead. I'm sorry. Like, I love his performance in this. He's a really likable character. You know, uh, Chris Christopherson is great. But, like, I first of all, he undercuts the kind of tragedy of the first film. And then mm-hmm. I feel like he doesn't really have much weight except to be, Oh, I'm human. I'm dragging Blade around. I feel like, you know... Someone else could have done that. Like, he's a nice foil for Scud. And I feel like they play off each other really well. I'm just not sure that was really worth the whole film.
2: Hmm. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, so I'm not sure if I agree Mm -hmm. with that, actually.
2: Yeah. Because
0: I think that Whistler plays a really important role in this movie as a kind of chosen family member of Blades, which is something that we wanted to talk about, Yes,
2: Annie... You've been on the front lines of this one. Can you tell us more about this white, the white supremacy angle?
0: Yeah. So there's been lots of interpretations of the Blade movies, um, and they definitely are about American anxiety surrounding blood and uh, the transmission of sexually transmitted infections, as well as um, drug addiction and the homelessness crisis. Those issues are really definitely baked into these stories. But overall, what we have is a movie about a vampire who is attempting to create a master race of other vampires from his own, quote unquote, pure bloodline. And so kind of within that, Damaskinos has sort of set up this racial taxonomy, right? In which he is at the top of this house. He's at the top of this hierarchy, and he's seeking to maintain his power, privilege, and position within that by creating this, quote-unquote, master race of vampires. Anyone who is lower than Damaskinos and his pure-blood children is seen as disposable, is seen as a tool or a pawn that can be moved around, which I think explains the failure of his relationship with Nyssa. Um, And so this is one of these great ways in which the film counters this idea that's kind of inherent in white supremacy that blood is kin. The idea that our blood relatives will always love us, um, that they will be our family, and that you have to kind of respect them no matter what. That's not true. And so chosen family is a major theme within these movies, which is why it's so important that Whistler comes back. Whistler is Blade's chosen family member. He's his kin, um, and so there's a lot going on in here.
1: Yeah, holy shit! No, I'm like that. That really struck out to me on this viewing because, like, it's like, oh, you know, vampires. And like the first one was kind of like, you know, neo-Nazi versus old-school Nazi kind of thing. There was some stuff going on here, but when it got to the fucking like, you know, it, like it, it's one thing. I, f- I feel like there's like. Innocence is the wrong word, but we use... I, I think there used to be a naivete about, like, these kind of eugenicist kind of storylines. Is like, you know, uh, like, it's like, oh, it's a sci-fi thing. It doesn't really connect to reality. It's like, we're making a more perfect alien race. We're making a more perfect super soldier race. We're making a more perfect vampire race. And, like, we used to not be... At least, me personally. Um, I didn't used to be as sensitive to the kind of underlying politics and philosophy that inform such a thing. But when I got to this one... um it, it, like, first of all, like, I did pick up on that. It's like, oh, this guy's a fucking eugenicist fuck. Of course he made the fucking guy. Of course it's a, like, but then he says, like, you know, the bonds of blood are worth nothing versus my people. And it's like, holy shit, this is, this is Nazi shit. This is fucking Nazi shit.
0: Well, but we also need to acknowledge the extent to which these policies are part and parcel of American culture and have always been foundational to it. We had eugenics laws on the books from the late 1920s to the late 1970s. So we were sterilizing people legally so that they could not pass on their quote-unquote bad blood. And the Nazi regime actually drew a lot of its ideas from American Jim Crow policies, like eugenics, like segregation policy. So it's important for us to understand those things and to kind of understand how those fit into this really big picture about fascism and white supremacy. The other thing to think about too is how legible those things are to people, right? Do people understand that it's white supremacist language? No, not always. Will they pick up on the fact that Reinhardt is a Nazi? Yes, because he's very obvious. He likes the regalia. He's really in it to bully people and hurt people because he gets off on violence. But Damaskinos, though, Damaskinos is a scion of power who's able to mobilize his wealth and privilege to kill people, to maim people, to set up a system that entraps um, some of the characters and forces them to become reapers. And I think. This movie does a very good job at looking at how white supremacist ideas are mobilized at these different levels, and I really appreciate that about it.
2: Yeah, that, it is interesting. As I would say, like, Jess, I agree with you uh, that Whistler's, I don't know, revitalization and two doesn't do, one, any favors, but... I think this is what kind of makes the Blade and Blade 2 so kind of weird is that this was pre franchise era. So the sequel could really not have much to do with the first one, and it was still, hey, cool, it's Blade 2, right? So my first experience watching this was Blade 2. I saw Blade 2 way before I ever saw Blade. And mm-hmm. it was like, oh, there's this weird white guy in a tank. All right, cool. But I didn't have any of the previous context of Whistler and Blade, yeah, any of that jazz. It was like, oh, there's even a cure for vampirism. That's kind of weird. But as the movie went on, it was like, oh, I'm just enjoying this character, seeing how they play off. But with part one, Whistler's entire character is different. He serves a different role. And then here he's just part of the ensemble being funny, giving somebody uh scud to talk to and learn more about blade's past learn more about the blades present by him asking scud all that stuff and i i liked his presence there he he really brings the film into a more fun place
0: yeah i got to agree with that i think otherwise it would just be too much suffering in the plot. Oh,
1: yeah, definitely. So, actually, this is something I wanted to ask you guys, since you both of you, I think, are more... Before this viewing, were closer to this film than I was, um, because one thing I noticed was um, at the end of Blade 1, when they come out into the light of day, that is the visual language that was not yet codified as being post-apocalyptic, because I got to the end of Blade 1, and they're standing there in the orange-brown light... And there's dust and there's no people around. And the only thing I could think is because I'm watching this today in a different cinematic cultural context, the visual language and what I'm picking up is so different. Because I think, like, it it went uh, in, you know, 1998, that was hopeful, that was daylight, that was the end of night. But we've had so many movies since then, we've seen so much stuff since then that my reaction to it was informed by a different you know literary canon of film so yeah so i'm kind of curious for both of you since you have a closer connection like do you feel like your read on this film um really changed that much um in in the last time you've seen it versus you know today
0: i don't know that my read on the film has changed all that much i think i understand what you're saying um And I will say, I do believe that the visual language of this sort of like post-apocalyptic landscape has been in film for a while. So like, it's been there. Um, But I I think the context of it has changed. And Jess, we've talked about this before, about the cinema of 9-11, as well as a lot of the other conflicts that happened afterwards. I think... That there is a different context for this, um, and you can do a bleaker reading of that ending to say, like, okay, yes, they're going up into the light of day, but what's left? It's that's fair.
2: I, I think the real challenge of, I guess, this episode is that I, as a lover of Blade Two, I don't think I've. No, i don't think it's very clear that i've seen this movie in a different way than you jess and that the different parts of it stuck out to me so the ending with a you know or gazing into the sun seeing the sunset it i didn't get like the uh like the framework of the,
0: matt i think she's talking about uh-huh. the first movie not,
1: not this one. Okay, no, no. I, I want to clarify. I feel like I've miscommunicated a little oh. bit. I was talking, I was not talking about this film. I was talking about how the ending of the first film came out oh. and how it um. played into visual language okay. that had become to mean something else. Okay. Like carrying her into sun, dying in her arms. That I love that. That's great. I'm not saying that's post-apocalypse. I'm saying that the visual language of film as a whole and i was providing an example specific to the previous film has changed and in ways i think that's informed some of my readings
2: you know i can't say that my uh i don't know film library or internal library has changed too much since i first saw blade 2 of just a i see what you're saying about the apocalyptic imagery or the way that that's what that means now especially with uh Especially with how much uh, post-apocalyptic stuff became, you know, in the Vogue. How, but that... it's weird. Watching Blade and Blade Two. I... I can't really see, like, the post-911 cultural shift. You know, there's something about it that just really grounds it before that framework. You know? At yeah, least for me.
0: I mean I think it was coming out at the same time, that first one, but yeah, how do we read this after nine eleven?
1: Oh well, man, we, we we almost made it through a movie year. without talking
2: about nine eleven. Yeah.
0: Good <laughs> good catch. It's like Matt. any good yeah. catch. Well, thank you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> thank you. Yeah.
0: But I think that's the difficulty here is that that is such an all-encompassing event that I can see it impacting the way that we read post-apocalyptic fiction. At the same time, the emergence into daylight is not necessarily a happy ending. It's an ambiguous one. It's about is leaving open new questions to be answered.
1: Well, this came out in in March two thousand two, so this was pretty much cut and print at like in the wake. Of, like I exempting like extensive reshoots i don't think you could have changed this movie um and i am I'm, I'm thinking about this uh, or at least i'm trying to think about this and what i what i'm coming back to a little bit here is this idea that this is a smaller scale film in a lot of ways yeah i mean you have these really elaborate sets but it's places, much smaller than what we see at after but at the same time when I'm looking at this film, uh, what I see is that the stakes are smaller in that, like, you have things that are going on, you have these characters, but like, the, it's the end of the world in a certain way, like, it's it's you you do have these high stakes where it's like, what happens here will inform the fate of the world and will make, like, the bad shit happen. But you also have this sense that it's not going to end right away. That this is going to start, set the dominoes in motion, but this is not the end itself. Which is where I feel like you get a lot of the kind of, like, high stakes game that we like to play in Hollywood.
2: It's interesting. It's kind of... It's the fact that it is grounded in folklore and previous film traditions, yeah. that it's the death of the old and the birth of the new, yeah. kind of the birth of Blade in its own weird way, mm. because with the eradication of the old world vampires, evidenced by that guy, and the destruction of the new generation of old world vampires, all that's left is Blade standing in the sunlight.
0: Yeah, and potentially, like, carrying out his mission after that, I think. (laughs) And here's a...
1: So, interesting read, I think. Maybe. I don't know. I shouldn't maybe maybe call my own read A little bit of self-historicizing there, Jess. But...
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh,
1: Yeah, but... I think what's kind of interesting is how I'm processing the ending shot, now that I'm thinking about it. Because what I'm seeing... In the ending shot is... It is a thing of beauty. It is a thing of, like, this kind of sad death of Nyssa. But I'm also seeing a loneliness to it. Is you have Blade standing in the sunlight, and he is alone. He's the only vampire. And he's lost a connection to, like, one of the few people who might have any chance at all of understanding who he is. And, like, connecting with his experience. And this is something... That's I guess become more important for me recently because you know, hey turns out I'm a girl and I'm an oppressed minority and that shit kind of sucks and it is actually really isolating because um, like you, you, I'm, I'm gonna pull this back to the conversation we were having in the preamble is there was a tweet I just read where it's like, why can't I just tell my parents these are articles are written by liars who hate me? And why won't they just believe me is there's these very fundamentally isolating experiences and Blade is between worlds. And like, sure. Yeah, this is this is this is me doing my fucking thing. It's like, hey, it's a trans reading of Blade 2. No, sure. I think that's legit. But I think that's that
0: it is dead on. like,
1: look, you you, you you can't divorce this kind of like early two thousand cyber goth culture from like the Matrix. No, and you can't. The fucking like queer culture of the time is like it's so it's it's the periphery of society. And in a way, I do think it is a very prominent part of that ending shot where you're looking at kind of like the demolition of Blade's kind of social spaces. It's, it's really hard to like phrase all this together.
0: No, that makes a ton of sense, Jess. Um, and I think you are seeing a kind of dual alienation, right? There's an alienation from the self that's going on at the end where Blade just kind of like has to shut down all of his emotions. And he shuts down a lot of his personality, too, to become this kind of stoic figure holding Nyssa while she meets the sun. Um, And then there's also this alienation of himself from others, where he's lost a lot of people who were his connections to the outside world. And not a lot of people know what it means to exist in interstitial space, um, to live in the in-between. So that's a very hard place for him to be in, and I just I really wish that they had thought about this during the third movie,
2: <laughs> but
0: um, they did not because these are profound themes and they really do not take them up in Blade Trinity in any. I,
2: I just let you know there's way. a very strong chance if you guys ever do decide to do a Blade Three episode that I will pass. <laughs> hey, I'm okay with I that. I got to. Yeah, I got to the first couple of minutes of having that show on where Dracula shows up and he's just a dude in a bad outfit. Mm-hmm. I was just like mm, uh, This is nope. not this is not the beauty of the Reapers. Yeah. This is not, you know, Like, nah, nah, I'm okay. I'm alright. Yeah. Big bad Dracula. <laughs> now, can in I some ju- can-, can I just tell you? <laughs>
1: Matt, can I just tell you what? How that started playing in my mind is it just my, my brain just started playing fucking Talking Heads? There, it's just this is not my beautiful vampire. Oh, true. <laughs> my God, what have I
0: done? So dead.
1: you
2: may ask yourself,
1: how did I get here? And the vampire—that's <laughs> <dead.
2: laughs> that's very much this tale of Blade uh,
0: three. I also just realized oh, that this is. What we've been talking about is not the last scene of Blade 2. It's actually the scene before the last scene. No,
2: it's not. Can you tell us about the last scene of Blade 2, Annie?
0: Well, <laughs> so um, um, that vampire that Blade did not kill earlier. Who he said, Yeah, Rush. Who he said he Rush. was going to come His back and Rush. find. Um, So Rush decides to go to what looks like some kind of um, sex shop or, like, peep show type deal. He puts his coins in for the peep show, and there's Blade. And Blade's kind of like, you thought I forgot about you, didn't you?
2: Uh, (laughs) And then he stabs him. Mm, mm, mm. Mm -hmm. In the face.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so it's kind of this you know, corny, cliche um, sequel hook.
2: It's very uh, pre-Dark Knight Batman vibe where he is, oh, you know, he is the outsider. He is the perpetual outsider existing between worlds but in a never-ending fight for humanity that does not understand him and vampires that do not include him. And, like, that's, like, whatever, but that's Guillermo del Toro making it fun again. is like, we know you're into it. You don't have to be like, you know, he is our Dark Knight. you just like, oh yeah, he's still on his fucking quest to kill all the vampires, making funny one-liners in uh, strip clubs. Like, it's... It's just goofy and hilarious. I don't know.
1: I want to go back to that last scene, because one of the things that I actually find really fascinating about this is that last scene, because... And like I'm 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 disregarding Rush because like that's just a fun little sequel hook or like you know the work is never done which like fair play to that but it ju- it does feel I think a little bit rote
0: compared yeah, to the rest of the film. It definitely film. is.
1: What interests me though is the sunlight,
0: huh?
1: Because I do think this is where the script is a little you know more typified of your superhero film. It's, you know, oh, no, the hero, he has the sad journey and he has to keep going forever. But Del Toro shows restraint here because the sadness is quiet and internal. And, like, it's not even a case of getting a really good actor and, like, having them internalize that and play that on their face. No, it's just – it's in the body language. It's in the composition. It's in the setup. And so Blade is – this tragic figure is – he doesn't even get to have that moment. We don't get to share that with him, which I think is like really incredible. Like this, I, I I'm kind of turning around on this honestly. Like I I, I had like I said I had these expectations and I had to kind of grapple with processing a del Toro film,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, kind of I guess fresh. Okay. But now it's like as I'm as I'm discussing it, as I'm going through it, it's like no there is I think the back half really picks up.
0: Yeah, this is one of those movies where when you start really looking at it, there is a lot of rich content.
1: And just you know, Del Toro does work. And like, I, I I think if I had to describe like what this process has kind of been like for me, it's just like I was I was looking for Del Toro, and it took me a little bit longer to find him than I hoped. That's fair. Because like I I feel like I could walk back into this movie now, and like I would catch so much more. And I think I would have. I think. Seeing it blind, I think, is probably the problem for me, is seeing it without being primed and without having the familiarity to really grapple with it. Because as we're having this discussion, I, I'm becoming excited to see this film again, even though I was a little
2: down on it, like, you know, 30 minutes ago.
0: Oh, that's good.
2: Yeah, it definitely improves upon further watching.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's just, it never stops delivering the same hits. And minus, unfortunately, that... One goddamn CGI fight.
1: I love that CGI fight, though. I'm if sorry. If you can find joy, in like it, as an animator, good. I think I get a little bit of authority on that, and I'm just like, this shit slaps. Then you're good. But yeah, uh, this has been the movie more, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I've been your host, Jess Whitmore,
0: and I've been your co-host, Annie. You all can find me on the Discord. I'm dissertating right now so I'll be around whenever I can but please come and check us out and just talk to us because we like you. Jess, you can find now under the Twitter handle Jessica on Maine. You can also find and support our podcast on patreon.com/jessica on Matt, how about you? where can we find you
2: well i am on twitter at spook show cinema and i write for but why though podcast a, unique, a geek community and you can find them at but why though pc
0: awesome and thanks again for coming on matt like this was great man you were totally right this was the right pick for this episode um and we were just so excited to have you on again We also just want to say thank you to all of the people who have supported us, encouraged us, and offered us kind words over the past two years. It's meant the world to us, and this has been our most fulfilling creative project to date, so thank you. We've got some cool stuff coming up for you in the month of October. We've got uh, some new episodes coming out. We have a bonus episode potentially on the slate as well, so keep an eye out for that. We'd also like to say a huge thank you to Ipsofactopus for letting us use their song Trouble in all of our episodes to date. So thanks, and we'll see you next time, y'all. Bye.